You're listening to Gradient Descent, a show about making machine learning work in the real world. And I'm your host, Lucas Bewald. Joe Spizak is Director of Product Management of Generative AI at Meta, but I've known him a long time and he's been in the space a long time. He's done product management for AI at AWS and Google and Intel and Udacity and a number of others. He has a lot of learnings to share over the years, and this is a super fun conversation. I hope you enjoy it. All right, Joe, why don't we, um, why don't we start with what you're working on these days? I, <laughs> I see you're back, uh, back in Meta. What's, uh, what's going on? Oh my God. Yeah. It's, um, I, yeah, I jumped back in July, end of July and back in Meta and I mean, it's genuine, man. I mean, <laughs> it's. It's everywhere. It's everything. Um, I was working on Gen AI at, at, at Google. Working Gen AI back here, Meta. Um, it's it's a wild and crazy time. Uh, I mean, I mean, it feels great to be back. To be honest, like I think uh, there's never been a company that I've experienced that embraces open source and open science and and just like open innovation like Meta has. Um, and so uh, for me, it's like uh, it's it's kind of music to my ears being back here. So love it. Nice. Well, last time I think we talked, at least at length, um, when you were at Meta, you were working on PyTorch, I think, right? So this is a little different, isn't it? Or yeah, or, yeah. it it is. Well, I mean, it's it's interesting because, like, you know, Sumith and I. I mean, I saw your Sumith did one of these a few months back, and it's like him and I have kind of like rekindled the partnership, right? Because we worked together for five years on PyTorch and. Now it's like we're we're two we're kind of like two layers of the stack so to speak like I'm <laughs> and it's like it's it's interesting it's actually really fun to have the PyTorch team inside Meta and and kind of at the framework level and all the way down to the hardware level and I'm building the models and and actually thinking about everything around the models and and so it actually is actually really interesting working together now as kind of two big components in this JAI ecosystem um, very different but 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 still feels sort of similar too. So you're working on the the foundation models that, that you're releasing. That's like your, your day to day. And, uh, were you involved in yeah, Llama 2 I mean, or, yeah. or is that, uh, was that before you're, you joining? It was, it was actually, so I was, um, I was involved in, in like we built Llama 1 in one, one of my teams in, uh, in, so I was in, so after PyTorch, I was in FAIR. Uh, mm-hmm. working on math and science and building that up. And one of the teams was our theorem proving team, which is basically looking at kind of AI guided formal mathematics, you know, for eventually for like software verification and, and program proving. And there's some cool stuff happening there. In parallel to that, um, if you remember Guillaume Lampel, and he's actually just in town this past week, we had grabbed dinner with a few folks. And uh, it's interesting. He basically grabbed a bunch of spare compute and built Lama 1. And that's kind of where that came from. And that was like right around the time I left for Google. And uh, so then I came back and Llama 2 was out. And now I'm basically working on Llama 3. So Nice, nice. So um, I skipped skipped a generation. Skipped <laughs> a generation of Llama. Um, well, cool. I mean, can you yeah. talk at kind of like a high level, I guess, like, you know, what is the, like, what is, what does the company get out of this process of putting out these, um, these models, which are presumably really expensive, uh, to to train. Yep. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Is this this is a very similar story in a lot of ways to the George story. Um, and like I always think about goals in open source. Uh, yeah, I'm not an open source zealot. 
uh, for a lot of people may, may think I am, uh, given I've, I've spent a lot of time the last 10 years in, in open source AI, but uh, I actually deeply believe that uh, open source serves a really strong purpose and there are really clear goals to, to open source things. Um, and, you know, I think thematically, like Llama actually, it, I would say echoes a lot of, of what we saw with PyTorch. With PyTorch, when, you know, Sumit and I put our heads together back in like, you know, early 2018, we're like, what are we, you know, what are we going to do here? Like, are we going to converge? Um, we have this, this really high entropy, like ML community uh, around us. And we were th just thinking about, you know, what is the best way to like capture that community to, 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 in order to, you know, build better products to, you know, when, when innovations happen in the CV space or in NLP, like, like how do we capture that quickly and be able to leverage that for internal usage or, you know, build it into PyTorch, make it a better framework and, and that. And I think this similar story, um, like applies here for, for models as well. Like, I think, you know, we're, we're using these models in production. Like we're using, we're at least uh, the technology, the underlying technology in, in our production models. And so when you have like crazy high entropy spaces like safety, for example, um, or just model evaluation, you know, more generally, um, you know, having the role to use your models is really helpful. Uh, we learn a lot and we learn a lot really fast um, by other people using our, our models. So that's a huge motivator for us. But there are other reasons, certainly. And what are your what are your goals associated with with releasing it? Like, do you track usage somehow, or like like how do you know if you've had a successful yep. yeah rollout? And I, can you talk about like kind of what you might be optimizing for with you know like subsequent versions of of llamas? Yeah, I mean, open source has always been one of those tricky things, um, you know, to go on because you can't really set a metric. I remember when. Um, you know, Robert Nishar over at AnyScale and he was building Ray and he kind of called me up and he's like, hey, <laughs> I don't know how to define success in open source. And, and, and I remember sending him like my detailed thoughts in, in like an email and and, uh, and we've been kind of friends, I think, ever since like uh, he was a fair intern and and he's got a great head for open source. But um, Oh, no way. But can it's we, really hard. We, like, we should think... put that email in the show notes. That would be amazing. Do you, do you have that? Is that private? I would love to. I mean, if people ask me that all the, the time, the, I would love to have a thoughtful response there. <laughs> it's well, I mean, it depends on your goals, right? I mean, like ultimately, like every well, for, first of all, with open source, everything's a proxy, right? You're you're very rarely able to basically measure directly, like what success is with open source. So you know, when we think about like in the PyTorch days, when we thought about research, research was actually like the easiest thing to measure, because like if my plain language goal is I want you know, our framework to be the foundation of research because, you know, it generates like new algorithms that we can leverage, like it speeds up inference, whatever it is that, that the value that, that gets created and that gets kind of brought into our platform. Like there's, um, you know, you can measure citations, right? You can, you can measure like papers with code. Um, they have a great, great way to kind of show, uh, they have that nice little index, um, uh, that shows, you know, over time the adoption of papers with code. So, that's like the easiest thing to measure, but like, how do you measure like whether your production, whether production usage is actually occurring, right? No one puts their code out on GitHub in production. So like ultimately you're dealing with proxies no matter what you're doing. Um, and I mean, even the cloud providers themselves don't actually have a lot of direct, like they can, they can get, you know, some customers that tell them, you know, you, you with weights and biases, for example, can, 
could get actually probably more direct signal even than I would say cloud providers, given you're so much closer to the user. Um, a lot of the usage on cloud, for example, is like obfuscated through like VMs and, and AMIs and such, whereas like you have actually direct. So it's anything, anything in success, like definition in open source is always a proxy. I've learned to live with that and it's, you know, I've embraced it basically. <laughs> when you, um, like when you build these llama models, like, like the next generation one, how do you measure the quality of them? Like, are you looking to kind of beat major benchmarks or, or what, what do you actually, like, how do you even decide like which one to ship? Yeah, it's, it's interesting because there's, I would say that there's two kind of two layers to, to North stars when it comes to these frontier or to, to foundation models. I, you know, I almost slipped up and said frontier. I spent the last several months, you know, now I'm all, now we're supposed to be talking dual use. Right. Um, but, uh, but you know, foundation models, um, ultimately like in my mind, um, should show emerging capabilities or they should be, you know, really capable on, and this is where eval is like really interesting because, you know, you, the capabilities and evaluation kind of go hand in hand. Like you either, you know, it's, it's almost like the chicken and the egg, which one comes first. Um, you know, did you, did you actually generate the model or did you evaluate it and find it? Um, uh, so I, I do think like, but ultimately like pushing on things like reasoning, you know, pushing on capabilities, you know, you can look at in the image space, I guess, if you can generate super, um, you know, photoreal photorealistic images or, or that, I think you can maybe call that a, a capability, but ultimately I would say there's like a dual, dual North star. One is, is obviously the, the foundation model capability, but the second is like actual I would say usability of a model because if, if, for example, I build a trillion parameter MOE, I'm just throwing numbers out there. Maybe it's too trying. Um, but at this massive MOE, like who's going to be able to use that ultimately, right? It's just like, a, like, it, you know, are we going to be able to use it even, even meta or Google? Like we'll struggle to, to kind of deploy something at that scale. I mean, they could probably do it, but it's like how efficient, how cost effective, like, are you going to be able to scale that in search or in our case, ads and feed and, and other things? So I do think that the second North Star is really kind of like adoption. And ultimately you need to be able to to take what you're building and, and ultimately make it consumable um, you know, for kind of at scale deployment. Uh, and so that might mean distilling these models into, you know, uh, sizes that are kind of tractable for different compute envelopes. Um, you know, it could be uh, pruning them and so on. Um, but ultimately like you you really want to push on capabilities and be able to waterfall that that you know to actual impact, um, and so there's a lot of thought that goes into that, and on how you actually kind of stage that process. How did you pick the particular sizes that you released? There's like three versions, right? How did, how did you come up with the the six billion parameters? Yeah. And yeah, I mean, in like in early days, obviously it's you know it's a little bit of we don't know, we don't know. So picking um, you know different sizes uh, based on I would say like compute envelope and, and memory, you know, based on memory, memory capacity of, of, uh, of, of what the platforms are that you target. So, you know, we kind of wish we, for example, would have released 34 B cause it's, it kind of fits nicely into the GPU memory. Um, you know, then, uh, obviously the, the Kaifu reached, uh, released a really nice model. Um, you know, it's 34 B and that's awesome. It's, um, I have a real, real problem with the licensing. It's an interesting license, but like, uh, but the model itself seems to be pretty capable. Um, but I think like in some ways, like, like I said, if you, if you start with really the foundational capabilities, um, and then you, you think about the different, you know, this is where product sense and your, your product, having a product manager thinking about these things, you know, does help. 
where you think about like what is it like ultimately that you're trying to achieve is it you know if you're trying to achieve like on device like an on device LLM to be able to run kind of in tandem say with a, a larger model in the cloud like you need to think about the the envelope and, and the compute footprint and the memory footprint it actually most importantly these days in mobile it's actually memory bandwidth um, that actually is uh, is actually the limiting factor so thinking through like what type of environments what type of experiences you want to enable um, I think is is I think probably the the most important thing um, in terms of sizes. So I think we've learned a lot, right? We, we have data now, right? We're releasing things. We know what people are downloading. What we know internally at scale what people are, are doing with these models. And we can add now, I can zero it in. Um, you know, the next generation, I can zero in much more precisely and say, you know what? This is actually a, a good size to aim at for, say, like the server side. And here's a nice, you know, size for maybe the other, other types of devices and so on. So I think like we're learning. I think it's a short answer. Is it hard to release models of different new sizes? Like I sort of imagine you distilling from one bigger model or are you training them all from scratch? Like how, how does that actually work? I think this is actually a bit of an open question of, because it, it's funny, you actually get different different sides of that camp. Uh, you know, people will say that, you know, to get the best small model, or a smaller model is best to start with a larger model and distill from there. Um, others will say, well, scaling laws are different for smaller models versus larger models. So, you know, you should basically adjust your shit and your scaling laws and you should, you know, train from scratch and and kind of saturate a smaller, you know, smaller parameter count and, um, and, and go from there. So I think, honestly, I mean, we'll probably try both ways and see what works best um, because you know, the, the amount of data we're using, um, you know, the, the, um, the amount of compute we're using is, is changing from generation to generation. And I think the use cases and I would say the envelopes of like, it's, you know, the, the actual environment these things are getting deployed in is actually a really target as well. So I think we'll, I mean, we'll probably try everything and see what works best, honestly. Nice, nice. Um, and, and with, you have a couple, I think, different, versions also with maybe different RLHF strategies. There's like a chat one and an instructs one, right? Like how, how did you end up at that? And yeah. what are you thinking with that? I feel like at some point there's maybe too many options and it, it starts to get confusing. Like yeah. how, how are you, how are you imagining modifying that going forward? Yeah. I mean, we're, we're thinking about it. Um, you know, what, it, what it looks like is there's, you know, I think I have a really innovative team that's like super excited to kind of work on different things. And and we also have a research organization in FAIR who, you know, for example, like they built Code Llama, which was a, you know, a fine-tuned version um, of Llama 2 for for not only like generating code, but also like, you know, just conversing about code. And so, yeah, the number of, of variants like is is kind of crazy. And you start to, to get this, you know, you're like, what do I use now? Um, and so I do, you know, do I instruct? Do I use um, the Python version? Do I, you know, do I just take the pre-trained one and ultimately like customize it for, you know, for what I want to do? Um, I think, you know, honestly, I think we're just in that space right now where we're going to be trying a lot of things and we may put out a lot of different models. And, um, so we're finding like certain data mixtures like generate really good reasoning, for example. Do we want to release a reasoning version? Or, you know, do we, like we did with code, um, you know, do we want to continue to release code versions and, like ultimately, I think it's uh, it, it is space right now that's like fast moving, and we're not sure like which you know can you just put all of these capabilities into like one foundation model and like have the best of all worlds? Maybe 
Um, you know, there's also like the the question of like how the capabilities come out of versus like or in terms of like pre-training versus fine-tuning versus you know RLHF. Like, is are you getting most of your capabilities in like in this in the, uh, pre-training like you know phase, or are you getting like everything in in SFT? Like, you know, do you need RLHF? Like, that's still a little bit of an open debate. I think um, I think we did all three, um, and obviously our models are are pretty good. Um, you know, open AI does do all three as, as well. So I think like, we'll just look at what people are doing. What, what's, you know, we might, some of our models might end up being like for showcase, like to, sh to show different capabilities and others might be more like, you know, built for customization. So, I mean, we're still looking at all, all, all types of models. Do you have any advice? I mean, I get this question a lot of like where to start, like what, what model to start with or how to think about that. Um, I was kind of surprised myself. I was trying the chat model seemed to work a little better for me in cases that felt like I was yep. like telling the model to do something. They worked significantly better than the instruct model. And I was kind of wondering like, Hey, how common is that? Or like, is there like a repository that I could go to to sort of see what general best practices are? I mean, can you speak to the best practice today or kind of point people to where they could learn more about that? Yeah. I mean, there's some really, there's some really great resources. Honestly, our team just put out uh, like a pretty massive getting started guide on Mama uh, just a couple of weeks ago. It's on the on the ai.meta uh, you know dot com slash llama uh, site. We still need our own website. <laughs> I'm working on that. Uh, but you know, there's uh, everything from like using you know Llama with Rag, um, all the, you know to uh, using a line chain, um, to prompt engineering, to fine tuning, you know, to all these things like. There's basically integrations and and kind of really nice uh, detailed instructions that, that kind of give you an idea of how to use the models. Um, I personally love using like the small models and just like um, I mean I, I like you can go to Hugging Face for example and just go into like the model zoo and grab like the seven B or even even like prompted directly. It's super super easy. Like, that's probably the, the first thing I do or or I'll start like I'll just grab like a Jupyter notebook or like a collab and like load up a GPU and and. You know, when like the early Falcon models came out, I, you know, and I saw them and I'm like, this is pretty cool. Like I could just grab one, like, and I was up and running with on, on the 40B within like a couple of minutes and just kind of seeing very quickly, like how it compared to like the smaller version they had and, and like, was it more coherent when it responded to me or, or would it like have a higher false refusal rate if I like asked it to do stuff? Um, so I think like, to me, like the, you know, there's a bunch of like services and things out there, um, my like go-to is either just to like set up a Jupyter notebook and collab and start to just grab a model, um, or you know just go like hugging face and prompt directly if if the model fits in GPU memory, I guess. It, um, otherwise, you'll like run out of memory. But that's that, those are things I do anyway. Interesting. So you recommend just sort of like trying them and getting a feel for how well they they work. That to me, yeah. I mean, if you're looking for like the the kind of chat, uh, you know, just to understand like how to converse with the model, I think. That's um, that's pretty interesting. That's like a, a quick way to do it. But there's also like if you look on like on Huggy Face, there's like eleven thousand derivative llama models that you can also like download. And people have like built Chinese versions. Um, they built German language versions. Um, they've made them fashionista versions. Or I think I saw our fashion versions that will converse with you about fashion. I'm not a very so fashionable guy, but I, you know, but uh, but you know, you can I guess play with those as well so i think you know the community is kind of innovating here and they're taking like advantage of the fact that you can like adapt these models pretty quickly uh, with very little data or even prompt engineering um and be able to kind of have them do different things so um yeah i mean it's pretty fun to kind of play with what the community is doing totally totally
And I mean, even the 6B model is is pretty impressive, although kind of challenging to deploy like truly for a lot of edge use cases. Have you thought about like building even kind of smaller ones? I feel like there's a lot of appetite for that and, and various strategies that I've seen out there. Yeah, there's, um, I mean, we've, you know, we released the 7B actually as well. Oh, 7B, we released, sorry. And yeah, right, it's, right. But it's, uh, and it's, you know, Qualcomm, for example, is able to deploy the, the 7B Llama 2 on, on the new Snap, on the new, uh, Snapdragon. That was like a, announced a couple of weeks ago. Like MediaTek is, is able to do it. And, and I think that's going to be like a fairly premium like feature on a phone. So it's like the high end phones, which yeah, you can imagine like smaller versions. I think there's a, there was a paper I just saw that came out this past week called Baby Llama, uh, which was pretty cool. Um, you know, there's also like Tiny Llama uh, on, on GitHub. Somebody's basically releasing incremental checkpoints and it's like a 1 billion. It's up to a 1 billion. They're releasing all the checkpoints up to 1 billion. So there's actually quite a bit of, of innovation. I mean, it's not that expensive to train or, or to pre-train from scratch, right? When you get into the small, the small models, um, it's just like really how coherent you can make them. Um, and, uh, and I think the more you can like basically fine tuning or, or like uh, adapt them for a specific task, I think the more coherent they can be, which is really cool. So you can't really expect like a one B or a three B for example, to like be as good as like a 70 B or or bigger, um, just because it doesn't have the model capacity. But, but all of that said, like we actually haven't, I, don't, I think, yet saturated those those model sizes. So actually, I, I do think there's like opportunity for us in the community to kind of build better, smaller models. So I'm pretty bullish, actually. Um, I mean, one thing that I was kind of wondering about, you know, like it, like it was a little bit irritating to have to like ask permission to to just download the model, like. It, what was the thinking behind that? Like that, that it's a product manager. I'm sure you want to remove um, friction and the, <laughs> the sort of like waiting for a few hours to get access yep. to the model is kind of like, wait, what's going on here? Um, no, it, this drives me crazy. Uh, and I'm, I'm working on some things I think to make it easier, uh, certainly, but yeah, I, I mean, I, as a product manager, like I, I mean, as a, as a, as a llama guy, whatever you want to call me, um, you know, if you if you follow me on GitHub, you'll see that I, I'm on there a lot and responding to issues, and I see a lot of what the community is is dealing with. And it's, I mean, I don't know how many issues are of there are for like unhugging face, like you know, because right now we do like um, we do a check on the meta side, we do a check on the on the hugging face side. You know, we have a, a license that is, you know, it's not a crazy license, it's not crazy bespoke, um, but it is a modified license. We have an acceptable use policy. Which I think is a good good thing to have, um, but yeah, ultimately it does add friction, which I'm not happy about. So I'm I'm hoping with some of the changes we have upcoming that we can streamline that uh, quite a bit, um, because I think ultimately like we want this technology in, in everyone's hands. Um, I don't think the license we we selected precludes any of that. Um, I think though there are some things we can do uh, with like Hugging Face, Kaggle, and other platforms though to just make it easier to access the models and more streamlined. So yeah, I mean we're definitely working on that. But I'm as frustrated as you are. <laughs> do Do you feel at all competitive with other open source projects to build foundation models, or do you just feel like, hey, this is great? Like, let's just collaborate with them. Like, what What's that like? I mean, I'm a competitive guy. Don't you feel competitive? I love it. Nice. I mean, I'm of two minds here. I love I love being competitive. I love seeing our models top of the leaderboards. I love hearing about what, what people build with our models and, and the stuff. I mean, I've, I'm just shocked, for example, like how 
like enterprise even has it like adopted like llama models from mid July to now like thousands of enterprises are using like llama models in products. Um, on the other hand, though, um, and by the way, that's a huge source of pride for like you know me and a lot of other folks that met it here. Um, but at the same time, like I love when other models are released into the open because I think that it's it can't be just meta, right? It can't be just like us and our team like carrying the flag for the open, you know, for for openness and. And transparency. I think it's like, you know, I love, I've, I've met with the Falcon team. They're super cool. I love what they're doing. You know, the, the Mistral team in, in Paris, I mean, they're all of our friends, right? I mean, I, they're all my colleagues, uh, Tim and, and Giel and the team. So like when new models come out, I'm huge fans. So I'll go play with them and I'll compare them and I'll be like, uh, I'll, I'll evaluate them. And, and it's just like the more, honestly, that the better uh, gets out there. But yeah, I mean, I'm a little bit competitive, obviously. I want us to have the best models. Are there, is there like secret sauce in the training that you want to um, keep to yourself or, or are you just totally open about the learnings and the process of, of building these models? I mean, we're pretty transparent. I mean, the, the paper, totally. I mean, how many pages was our paper? 48 pages? I mean, so like, I, I think there's obviously, every company has secret sauce that you're going to kind of keep to yourself, uh, you know, but at the same time, like, I think if you read the paper, like we were, we the, the RLH the RLHF like ablations studying that the team did was like, holy cow! When I read that, I was just like, I mean, I've never seen anything like this. So um, that paper was an absolute masterpiece, and that's just not. I'm not saying that because I'm I work at Meta and, and I know the team, but it really was an amazing paper. It was as detailed as I've ever seen it, and and like as transparent and everything from like the, you know the. I don't know, just like the learning curves and 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 RLHF, um, the, the ablation study to, you know, how we, we thought about SFT versus pre-training. It was like, it was just really, really detailed. And like, um, yeah, I mean, so I think we've we've been as probably, probably as transparent as we possibly can be, I guess, maybe at that point. Can you talk about what you're working on now in the in the next version of this? Like, like, how are you thinking uh, about that? Like, a little oh, bit. Uh, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, like, what are you, like, what changes are you thinking about? Um, I mean, we've learned a lot. I mean, I think that, I think there's a bunch of other challenges besides the model. I think that are, you know, I think I kind of look at the, what's interesting is, you know, I saw, you know, Karpathy had this post, uh, you know, last week around uh, kind of LLM operating system and, it was um, interesting because I had been thinking you know, along this line for for a while as well. It's it feels very much like the model is the kernel, and you know you kind of have um, in, in the operating system you have things like uh, your antivirus, which is kind of like your trust and safety, I guess. And you know you have like file systems and your know, access to to kind of information or like through embeddings or rag and databases and so on. And so like um, I think I'm thinking about like not just the model, but I'm thinking about the whole ecosystem. I'm thinking about, you know, levels of abstraction for how you access these models, whether it's, you know, through an API, through our partnerships, or, you know, through like direct access or integration with SDKs, or, you know, we, we work, for example, with a lot of open source projects like Landchain and AutoGPT and, and a bunch of others. And so I'm right now, I mean, my biggest focus is like, how do I think about the community and, and how do I, how do I build around, you know, Llama models as kind of like this kernel of an operating system 
and and bring a more holistic like you know platform for others to build on. Because ultimately, like with PyTorch, like that's that was kind of our strategy with PyTorch. Is we kind of um, you know when we thought about like what do we make, what do we buy, um, you know we we didn't want to king make in places where it didn't make sense for us to king make. Uh, I think probably Smith uh, talked about this in his his uh, podcast, but you know in areas of um, of high entropy, you know it's it's kind of weird to go and put something there and and then you know be kind of competitive with everything going on in, in the high entropy space. So so we want to build basically things that others can build on ultimately and grow a community around that and create that flywheel. And so like I'm looking at areas around Lava and thinking, I mean, like trust and safety is one area where in evaluation, like how do we actually grow the community around us so we can basically ultimately build safer um, generative AI experiences. Like I think ultimately there's this chasm to cross, right, in products. How do I take this open model, which looks looks cool and does some cool stuff, but ultimately build responsible and safe products from it? And I think so. This is this is kind of like a, and and you know some of the things we're doing. Obviously, we're we're involved in the ML Commons um, safety working group, and uh, and working with the, the community there to help standardize and and build build tools and evals. Um, but yeah, I mean, generally speaking, I'm thinking about the whole product here and not just the model. <laughs> well, like, what kinds of things are you thinking about building in the realm of safety or encouraging others to build? Like, what kinds of problems do you see people running into? And and how are you fixing that? Yeah, I mean, you can look at the executive order as um as as one. I mean, cybersecurity certainly you know generating insecure code. I think if you uh, that was one of the top, it was the top thing on the on the executive order. There's just you know general safety around you know uh, input output you know to your to your prompts. Um, all kind. Of, I mean, there's a number of different harms, and we you know we have to deal with obviously as a company. We have a massive platform uh, on Facebook and Instagram and WhatsApp and. And so there's there's kind of harms that we deal with on a daily basis, and so internally we're looking at those things. And I think what we want to go, what we want to do is ultimately you know help grow the community around you know our model so they can basically help build these things as well in, in the open. And uh, so you can imagine taking, for example, a model you know from say Amazon and then um, being able to adapt it to your application, but then ultimately I don't know if that model is actually safe or not. Um, you know, how do I actually understand whether it's going to be, you know, generating, uh, you know, outputs that's, that will create ultimately harms. I mean, I wouldn't go far as like go crazy uh, with like bioweapons. I know it's been like the topic du jour, right, of, of like the, the summit last week. Um, I think there's like nothing's, nothing's impossible from these models. Um, but, you know, understanding what these risks are and ultimately um, finding ways to mitigate them uh, and build that into your products is, is and, and, and make your products basically as safe as possible. That's ultimately my goal. And I want to not only do that at Meta, but also do that in the open. But like, I guess when you talk about like safety of inputs and outputs, you know, I feel like everyone says that, but it's a little vague. Like, how do you, like, can you be like a little more yep. concrete? Well, I mean, I think this is part of the challenge, you know, we have, I think. Uh, and so for example, if I, if I were to hypothetically put out tools um, that allowed you to understand you know, the, the input safety of a prompt. So say, you know, you, you know, Lucas Bewald wanted to ask my, my model here, ask Llama to build a bomb. Um, you know, that's, that's obviously an unsafe input. Um, I think everyone would probably agree that that's like, you know, pretty generally speaking, uh, uh, uh something that was bad or a bad, bad thing to ask for, or a bad thing to generate an output for. Mm -hmm. Um, but there's a lot of gray area here too. Mm -hmm. And like, uh, in our, our policy isn't, you know, may not be like Amazon's policy or may not be like someone else's policy. So 
Um, I, unfortunately, like, yeah, I mean, it's, it's going to vary from, from party to party. But I think this is also why we want to work with the community and especially ML Commons to standardize. Mm-hmm. Because, like, our perspective may not be everyone's perspective um, on what a harm is. I mean, we deal with all kinds of crazy stuff on our, our platform today. I mean, you know, sexual content and um, and human trafficking and all the, the terrible things that, that, you know, that we try and mitigate. I mean, these are these are just uh, horrendous things that, you know, we want to, we obviously want to keep off our platform and and and, um, and we deal with integrity issues on a constant basis. And the you know question is like, you know, how do we do that? Obviously, we have tools internally, but then you know, what is the community dealing with? How do we create a framework so that your policy that you can adapt a custom policy and so on? So I think that's and this again it goes back to like ML Commons and us working to standardize these things and ultimately giving you know companies the freedom to define you know policies themselves. But I guess, I mean, Lama 2 probably has embedded in it some of these safety mechanisms, right, that you're, you're probably trying yeah. to make hard to override. Like, could I, could I get Lama 2 to yeah. tell me how to make a bomb? Like, does it know that somewhere inside of it or 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 not? I mean, ultimately, it's trained in a lot of data. So it can generate things, you know, if you, you any with any of these models, I think you could prompt it in a way or you could, you could probably um, prompt it in ways that would, would eventually allow you to do that. I think it's it's a matter of um, of of maybe determination or uh, you know there's if you, there's a ton of ways to jailbreak these models. I think we have oh, we have a lot of data though that shows how safe we are. Um, I think that we've done internal studies. We've obviously um, this is one of the reasons why we love having our models out there is because researchers obviously are are going to be kind of crowdsourcing. We have a crowdsourced you know kind of researchers who are mm-hmm. are banging on our models, doing publishing papers, understanding the bias in our models, understanding, you know, how to, how to break down. Um, I mean, how to manipulate the system problems, which is a problem, but we had, you know, for, for a while until we removed that. Um, so I think like there, this is why, why I think being open actually is helpful. And then you can understand these things better and then you can mitigate them in either the, the current generation or the next generation. So but yeah, I mean, ultimately, like these models can be manipulated. And I think this is why I think, in my opinion, like trust and safety is like a, is one of the most important things that we need to deal with. And, and we need to do that in the open and how we, how we build these tools, how we evaluate these, these, these models, um, you know, how we do it, not only unilaterally, but as a community. But isn't there like a danger in open sourcing a model that you can't take it back? Like if somebody does find a way to get this kind of, you know, maybe unsafe information out of the model. There's no way to to put the the genie back in the bottle, right? I mean, it's it's kind of the nature of open source in a lot of ways. Um, so, I think ultimately, like the harms, the or the good, I, I'd say, you know, should outweigh the harms. I think that um, if you look at you know kind of the open versus closed argument, um, you know, I would I would much rather have a world where we have a, you know, maybe, maybe I'll use the OS uh, analogy here. Um, you know, Windows versus Linux, right? Um, am I, am I going to be operating and, and, and working in a Linux environment? Um, you know, where I can inspect the kernel, I can, you know, I can build on it. Um, it's transparent. Um, or am I going to be like operating in, in say like a Windows closed source environment where, you know, I, I trust my, my overlords or, or, or my paternalistic, um, you know, owner of that platform to, to make sure that everything is okay. And, and that, I mean, there's a, there's a case, I think maybe to be made for both. Um, certainly. 
And um, I like I really think transparent and open is is kind of the way. And um, I think the the good that comes out of this, like the democratization that happens when when you build in, in the open, I think is, um, I mean, it's uh, it's amazing. Like I, the number of startups that are building out Lama models, um, I'm hearing numbers like in the thousands. Like, um, and I, I actually don't think that's hyperbole. Um, totally. I think enterprises are building on it because they, they can't build their own foundation models and and they don't want to ship data, for example, into, to others. Um, they'd rather maybe run this on the edge or run it in their own data centers um, in places where they don't have to send data back to, to another cloud or to another service. So like I, there's just so many positives in, in being open um, about this and um, yeah, I, I think it's it's such an important thing that we have a, a we have good balance. I would say in the discussion between open and closed. Um, what about the um, the data sets? I think you don't actually release the data set it's trained on, if, if I remember right. So so would you ever right. open up the data set, or how do you, like how does that how do you think about that? Yeah, I mean we've released uh, quite quite a few data sets over the years. In this case, like, you know, we, we're not for, we're not releasing our data sets, you know, for a number of reasons, um, you know, competitive reasons. I think that, you know, that that's being one, I would say. So, um, but like, I think you can, you can look at the number of data sets and things we've opened and we may open data sets in the future. Um, yeah. I mean, we're always talking about it. It's, it's a lot of energy. If you've ever worked in a big company, um, and you've, uh, <laughs> and you want to release something and I would say meta is probably like the one of the best companies in, in, in that terms. I mean, if you look at Google and Amazon and the companies I've worked for, um, I would say Meta is, is definitely the easiest to, to do that. Um, but we may, may release in the future. Uh, you know, it's, it's up for discussion. It's a matter of goals, I would say. How do you think about, um, multilingual capabilities? Um, multilingual is interesting. I mean, I think we, we've seen, I would say Llama models be fine-tuned on a, a ton of different languages. Uh, I think it's it's obviously there's a demand for multilingual. There's, uh, you know, not not everything is English, right? We we have a very North American centric, you know, view where you and I are sitting here in in Silicon Valley and San Francisco, and and so everything could you know is English and and very Americanized. Um, but that's not the case, right? It's it's like the world is, is super diverse. There's a lot of languages that are used. Um, I think I've been pleasantly surprised on how many how many languages people have kind of fine tuned uh, on top of Llama and then release models. Um, I think it's the the challenge, of course, is like how do you how do you do that at like if we were, for example, to build multilingual capabilities into our models um, in the future, like evaluation is obviously um, you know something that's interesting in, in languages. If you get something slightly wrong. It can say things that maybe we didn't want to say, right? Um, so, like I think just being thoughtful about that I think evaluation again is is one of the one of the biggest concerns. Um, so, like having a robust um, eval platform, having obviously a diverse um, data set, um, and it gets harder and harder as you kind of get into like the, the low resource languages. Um, getting getting that, and, and obviously like having people who speak all those languages is really really helpful. Um, so it's. It's definitely a hard problem. Um, it takes scale. Um, it take you know you have to be thoughtful about it. Um, and uh, but I think these models, if we want them to truly be world models in the future, um, I think multilinguality is is I mean kind of a basic basic requirement. So totally.
Um, what about the tone of the model? Like, it's kind of interesting. I feel like Llama chat has a very distinct tone. Like, how much thought was was put into that? Tell me, tell me more. Tell me what, more about what do you what do you think the tone is? It too chatty? Is it like, or is it too terse? Oh, or is it like I'm kind of curious. Like, you're, you're, what do you what do you think? Oh, well, I mean, this is a, my only my impression, but I sort of feel like ah. the the GPT models feel like kind of like I'm talking to a Boy Scout or something, like just feels very sort of like affable and direct. And I feel like the llama models feel a little kind of like sillier to me and crazier. Like I feel like it, it feels like kind of more friendly, kind of like a little bit more of like a personality, but that, like less serious. I, I'm curious if that was like, intentional I, I don't even know if other people have that same impression that's just you know <laughs> i've been talking to a lot of these models uh over the last couple of months and that's that's one man's uh inter- one man's impression yeah. i guess that's interesting i mean i've definitely i mean i've played obviously with a lot with llama and i played with bard and, um played with with the gpt models and um i don't know i've i've found llama to be pretty good i think it's it's like you always like balance like helpfulness and safety and, and all these different factors and you, know, you have reward models. Um, and so uh, I actually found like the GPT models to be fairly terse when it came to, when it came to like certain things, like it will um, like if, if it's going to do a, like a refusal, like it will like be pretty, pretty terse when it refuses things like, mm-hmm. you know, one sentence, like I can't talk about that or something like that. I, I can't remember. And uh, like some other models are a little more chatty. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, llama models tend to be a little little chattier, but they actually, you know, when they refuse, they tend to be more helpful too, from my experience. So, if, like, if we were, if you mentioned, for example, um, you know, something I don't know, bad happening or something, like it will, it it won't just like, um, it won't just like flat out refuse you. It actually, will like provide um, I don't know, here's like a hotline or something like here's a here's like you know where you can call for to get help or whatever it is. So it's so even when it's it's like actually kind of refusing, it actually will come and, and provide some, something helpful. And I think that was like a balance that you have to strike. And that's in some ways that's probably a lot of like the like the the inputs you got from humans when you're generating your you know your reward model in the RLH, uh, RLHF. So like um, it, in some ways it's 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 harder. I think maybe ultimately these models like reflect you know what they were trained on and and. And you know the SFT data and and everything that you put into them in, in, in terms of a reward model and so on, I think they ultimately reflect those things. Um, so I think we just maybe had a different sampling of people maybe than other models. I'm not sure, um, but I think it's actually interesting that you found that observation. Or maybe different guidelines in the um, the RLHF. Like, I, I'm, do you actually release the the guidelines that you use? I'd imagine that's a pretty important uh, piece. Yeah, we talk. I think we talk a lot about it in the paper, um, but the reward models are not open. Um, well, okay. I guess this is a question I expensive. get. I get constantly. I'm curious how you. Uh, what What are like? What do you feel like are the biggest kind of working applications that you see of of Llama two, especially in a business context? Yeah. I, it's not the sexiest applications, uh, to be totally. honest. Like, of course, um, you know what I mean. It's like, it's, it's like summarization, is like honestly one of like the it's like the unsung hero of Gen AI. Um, I was like 
chatting with somebody, um, a CTO of a medical company, and we were having dinner um, at this thing uh, like last month, and they're using Llama two, and I'm like, so what are you, what are you doing with it? You know, doing some crazy stuff. Like, um, are you, you know? And he's like, honestly, like if you think about your medical records, and maybe people, some people have really long medical records. Uh, they have like 500 pages of, of records, and and if you just want to summarize it, like in plain language, um, in a way that you can easily read it as a, you know, either as a doctor or ultimately or as a patient. I mean, you can do that with, with an LLM and it's great. Um, and you can ask a question then. Um, and so like, I, I really think like there's like, we're, while we're getting super excited about like a lot of the, like the more far flung applications of Gen AI, like we're, we're kind of forgetting that it brings some level of value just for basic things like that. So, um, I see a lot of that. I think, um, you know, like zoom, for example, like, you know, they, they have agents that deploy when you're, you know, you have meetings and it'll summarize your meeting for you and give you like the salient, you know, highlights. I was actually just talking about this with someone um, yesterday, um, um, like over the weekend, I was having coffee with somebody. It's like, damn, I wish there was like a, an agent that, you know, was like private and all that, that would just like sit with me in my meeting and summarize and just, just take notes and in a private way, you know, summarize things. At the end of the day, like, cause I'm tired at the end of the day. I have, I start my days at like six or 6.30. Um, I go until late and like, I would love to have a two page, just like summary of all the notes all the salient things, all the actions, everything that someone's expecting from me, like, at, you know, at the end of the day, like, oh my God, that would be like a lifesaver. Um, Cause you know, when you're in back-to-back meetings for 10 hours or nine hours and, and uh, you know, whatever, take good notes or whatever, or you can't remember everything. So um, especially when you're multitasking, right? People paying you like, I get all these chats and, and people calling me or whatever. Uh, so like even basic things like that, I think would be like incredibly valuable for people. So like, I'm biasing right now towards like really like utility, but obviously the innovation is still coming. So, so you worked on you worked on PyTorch and then you worked with with the Jax team. Was there any like um, was there anything that you learned or saw um, from Jax that you would want to like take into PyTorch? You know, it's funny. Like the Jax, I first of all, I love the Jax team. Like they're they're so cool. Like they remind me very much of like the early days of of PyTorch, small team, uh, four researchers by researchers. You know, Sky and Matt and the team. They're just like so cool to hang out with. So I would go up to San Francisco just to try and find time and hang out with them. And James Bradbury, James Bradbury's now at Anthropic, and and so like I I'm trying to hang out with Sky because she's super cool and and just like chat. And I think the like. I don't know. It's, it's, um, on one hand, like I loved the way they just were able to just shut everything out around them and just keep building their core framework, no matter what happens around them. They just, they had this like uncanny ability to just like push away any distractions that, that, you know, like the production teams or like anyone, um, would, would come and like tell them what to build. Maybe like, okay, yeah, whatever. Um, and they would just keep building what they thought was awesome. And, uh, and it is awesome. Um, I think the, you know, like, so I think like, to me, that's like one of the, one of the best like learnings I had is like, just if you have like some of the best teams in my opinion are the ones that are like built by like four users built, you know, like built by user infinity. A lot of what you did, for example, with weights and biases, frankly, like, I mean, you yourself, like, you know, were a user in building weights and biases. And when you demoed, 
like I mean, I'm trying to think how, how many years ago that was when you demoed Smith and I, right? And we were like, we looked at each other after the meeting, like, holy shit! Oh, really? Cool. I didn't know that. Like, I was I actually awesome. didn't I yeah. didn't know that landed. That's so sweet. Okay, I... <laughs> you did. No, it was awesome. Like we both looked at each other, like this is this is awesome. Like this was such a cool platform. Like, and it's it just like it felt like it was built by someone who who had a lot of user empathy, and that's pretty rare these days, right? Because you product managers typically don't like aren't typically hands-on with these things or like you know a lot of these, these startups that i see building platforms like a lot of these people have never actually shipped production llms yet they're building systems and platforms that are you know supposed to be great right so like you know so jacks i think was really interesting i think jacks though where jacks's challenges were is actually it's funny because i look at jacks where it is today and it feels to me like at least in in terms of like processes and like and stability, it reminds me of like where PyTorch was maybe two three years ago. Um, in a lot of ways, it's it's probably further ahead than I'm, I'm giving it credit for. But you know things like feature maturity, things like forward and backward compatibility. Um, you know, I think you know last I checked, it, like it was, you know, there was there was no like there was no you know, semblance I would say of like backward compatibility. So they were, you know, as a user, like I'm pretty annoying because I'm constantly being break, you know, broken, right? Bro breaking changes are really annoying. But this is stuff you kind of like learn along the way. Like we didn't, like when we first like started releasing, you know, like the, the early versions of PyTorch, like 0.4 onward that were like built for for like large scale usage. Like we had no semblance of like breaking changes. Um, like we we would just break people, right? <laughs> we didn't know. But then I remember, we like really Joe, adapted. Joe, I was we there. understood like. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There you go, man. It's but you learn, right? You, and the only way to learn these lessons, I sadly think, is like by actually like living through them and like getting yelled at by users, like, "Hey, why did you break me?" Okay, okay, okay. What do we do next? Like, and we just like learn that, like, you know, we we issue a warning, right, when you use an API, and then the next time we break you, um, and at least you have a heads up and you can have a contract with the user. And so we learn that, like, over uh, you know, over time, you know. Um, and I think that's like the, like what I would say the Jax team still needs to grow up a little bit in that regard. Uh, but it's an awesome framework and it's got incredible user empathy. Do you not feel like um, there's also advantages to breaking changes? Like I'm a little surprised to hear you you say it like that because I kind of thought that PyTorch at the time was taking an intentional point of view of like, hey, we're, we're not going to be like saddled by the past and we're just going to like, you know, move forward and make you know, weights and biases life incredibly hard with every, you know, version of like basic primitives changing in each uh, point release. I mean, certainly PyTorch was successful, right? So do you think you would have been more successful if you yeah. had done more backwards compatibility? Um, I think, you know, I would say backward and forward compatibility are, are I mean, they're, they're kind of like a product of the level of maturity um, for a project. Like, I think in, in the early days of a project, I think it's totally cool to be breaking constantly. Like, I think, um, you know, when it's, when it's a research project, when you're, when you're in kind of this high entropy state where you're still figuring things out and you kind of have something that's interesting. Um, but like the community, like, but, but the ecosystem around you is like, is innovating rapidly. Like, I actually think that's totally fine. Um, and, uh, as long as you like communicate, right. As long as you like, are in constant communication with your, your users and 
like you tell them you're going to break them. I think the worst thing is when you don't tell your users that you're, you're going to break them and they, like, they're surprised. <laughs> As a user, that's super irritating, right? That's so frustrating. So I, I think you're like, it is a product of maturity. Like it is, as PyTorch became more and more used by production, not only inside like meta, but like, and in the world, like you can't just break production users, like, because they've, you know, they've, they've taken a bet on you implicitly and, you know, their products. And I remember when Microsoft like made a bet on, on PyTorch and, you know, they obviously have Onyx and they still use Onyx today, but they made this huge bet on it. And, you know, to be a two trillion dollar company taking a bet on a framework that another company is is like is building, that was a huge leap of faith from Microsoft. I mean, OpenAI as well when they they took a bet on PyTorch with us, and you know, I remember meeting with David Lebon and, and the team in in San Francisco, and they're like, "Yep, we're betting on PyTorch," and like, obviously, they you know built GPT three on it and GPT four, and you know, so it's like. You know, it's it's a it's a leap of faith at, at the end of the day, and um, and so like. It, ultimately, it it um, you have to think not only about your needs and what you what your company needs, but also like what you know what the community needs, and that forces you to think a little bit different and take different risks, or or push some of the entropy into like repos that are outside of the core, where you can kind of you know figure things out. Because we spent a lot of time with PyTorch, like modularizing uh, the code base, and it's still to this day. And we spend a lot of time, basically, every time we, we think about a new paradigm or a new API or something, you know, it sits outside the core. We can understand whether there's value. We can graduate it, um, if, you know, if we see that we want to support it long term. Um, but ultimately, like, people now are so relying on PyTorch. It's, you know, breaking them is so hard, right? It's uh, it's not, it, you need to be thoughtful about it. And so, you know, processes evolve, right? We, we learn how to deal with it. Um, and the community adapts to it, and they they come to expect. Okay, well, I got a warning. Aha! I better change my code because next release, right? Things are going to change, and people do it. So, were there other like major differences in culture that you really feel like? What what's, what is it? What is it like to be working at Meta versus working at Google on these these big open source projects? Um, I mean. Culturally, I can tell you, uh, in terms of open source, they're very different, say. Um, at Google, it was more of a question of open source on something, like as in, okay, we built this thing, like, you know, maybe after the fact, like, should we should we open source it? I don't know, maybe, I don't know, it's gonna be hard. Let's align like a bunch of VPs because, you know, you know, <laughs> um, no one agrees uh, on, on what to do. Um, whereas Meta, I think the going assumption for just about everything is that it's going to be open source, or we will we will think about open sourcing it. Now let's talk about you know number one our goals, um, number two like what success looks like, um, you know what what kind of a community should we build like um, like what how would we license it based on our goals. Um, so it's kind of like a built in assumption here that we're going to be open about a lot of our technology, whereas like. That assumption at Google, uh, in my experience anyway, and this is just my you know time there, is that it's it's not it's not an assumption that things will be open. It's you know it, it definitely it was harder, right? And it's just a it's just a cultural difference, I think, that in the companies um, and, and how they view these things. Um, again, just probably my experience in a lot of ways, but um, it was a lot harder. Open source was a lot harder there, um, and I think the the other thing that was different that I found is. 
and this is more of an ethos that I've adopted over the years is, you know, if you're going to open source something, you know, you, you absolutely need to support it and you need the team that's developing it to, to be there to support it. And I'm not saying Llama is perfect. Believe me, I'm, we're, you know, we're, we're fixing issues as quickly as we can and you know, we're trying to support the community as best we can. Um, but we do have processes, right? We have weekly triage meetings that, you know, I've been running and then, you know, like um, in that, I think the Google is a little bit different. I think in certain parts of it had that, that level of empathy. Like I love, for example, the Tensor, uh, Tensor board team, like Nick Felt and those folks over there, we partnered so closely with them on PyTorch because, you know, we we're thinking about, hey, we need a, you know, we need a really nice like visualization tool, um, like TensorBoard was like becoming the standard, like how do we re remove the TensorFlow dependency and and support PyTorch because we don't really want to build something brand new. And I remember we removed the TF dependency and and then basically got it so you can just basically import it into PyTorch like with a single line of code. And it was so, so awesome. I remember I brought over like half a dozen bottles of scotch over to Mountain View, um, gave them out to the folks over there that landed the PRs. And we were all like, you know, having a having a drink, and it was so cool. Um, that team is great. Um, other parts, like they've struggled, right? They um, like they have internal priorities that are overriding support externally, or you know, they they don't prioritize it or whatever. So it's definitely like it's a little harder over there um, than I think it is in Meta. Mm. Makes sense. Um, you didn't give us any scotch when we integrated with you. We <laughs> we begged to integrate with you. <laughs> <laughs> I I'm glad to buy you a glass of scotch, uh, <laughs> or, or a bottle. That's cool. Either way, no worries. No we, worries. We can share a bottle. <laughs> All right. I'm looking forward <laughs> to that. Did you want to talk about the um, AI Learning Alliance? Um, I saw that you're the the co co-founder well, of that, and and I was curious to know like how you think about that and what it does. Yeah, I'm, actually, I mean, this is another reason I'm excited to be back here. Um, this is such an amazing team. Um, you know the it's it's like Mark Mark Tigard and and Paco Guzman and and um, Diamond like it's it's just such a like a cool team and there's such like so I'm I'm of the belief maybe this is because I married a Canadian um, but <laughs> but I, I believe education is the root of everything and I don't think that's exactly a controversial statement but like I really believe in education I really believe that like uh, that it, you know if we had better education um, it would solve a lot of our challenges or, and. Um, and I think one of the things that, um, you know, I love, you know, I spent several years, you know, teaching, um, and, and building things for the Georgia Tech collaboration. Um, I, I think education, um, you know, should be open. I love open courseware. I love, for example, like all the Stanford stuff that Chris Manning, uh, you know, has released over the years, um, you know, with obviously the bonus that is all built on PyTorch, which was super cool. Uh, but like, you know, I think open courseware and, and just being transparent and helping to just lower the barrier to entry and like, you know, just level the playing field. And that was really what ILA was about. That's really what the AI Learning Alliance was about. It was like, you know, we're going to, we taught this class, this master's level deep learning course at Georgia Tech for several semesters. And, you know, then we basically released all of our, all of the course materials uh, including, you know, notebooks, um, and, and code and lecture notes and slides and everything. And then, you know, really helping to, to focus on, for example, like historically black universities, historically Hispanic universities, like, you know, global universities, like any, like anyone honestly who would work with us. I mean, we, we really wanted to kind of scale it, um, 
because like, you know, I think we're, we're in a bit of a bubble here. I, you know, the universities that I've worked with, with so much in the past are, I have such a West Coast bias just because it's so easy for me to work. You know, I can drive to Berkeley, work with the professors and students there or Stanford is, you know, 20 minutes from my house um, or NYU, obviously, because, you know, we have Jan Pakun and, and our team in New York. And we have such a bias um, towards these, con- these, you know, I'll call them convenient schools because they're so close to us or we just have strong ties to them. But like there are so many, there's dozens, if not hundreds of universities globally that want to be able to teach machine learning and AI. And, um, you know, and, and they need basic, you know, basic materials to be able to do it and, and help train the trainer and help teach and, and help grow this and, and help, you know, kind of foster I would say like the, the next generation of professors, you know, not at top tier schools, but at these other, at, at any school, frankly, um, because machine learning, I think is so important. So, so yeah, I'm very proud of that work. Um, I've spent a lot of time in my career uh, building courses. You know, uh, I try and do everything in the open. Andrew Trask, if you know Andrew over at Google, um, and he's a deep mind. Um, he founded uh, the Open Mind community, which is still to, my, to this day, like amazing to me and an amazing feat. Uh, he built it all around uh, the premise of of privacy and you know basically keeping data private, um, but still kind of innovating on that data. And, um, you know he calls it you know kind of working on data that you can't see. Um, and so we built a lot of tools together on PyTorch. Um, we built classes together. We released those on Udacity and other platforms. Um, and I I just firmly believe that if you can you know lower the barriers and and you can help educate people like it'll. Like it's it's so important. So that's that's where I stand. That's cool. You know, I, I know from reading the the comments and the reviews of this uh, this podcast, we get a lot of people um, interested in learning more about machine learning. Um, do you have any pointers to where you'd send people today? I mean, the the problem is one thing about the space is the shelf life is so short on a lot of this yeah. content. I mean, even the stuff you know we put out two years ago feels like it's definitely like you know not up to date. Like. We're we're here. We're no. It's November twenty twenty three. What's the, what are the best resources according to Joe? I you know I like the the Andrew Ng courses. The uh, the ones that are like two hours long, are, you know, super interesting. This and is the new like deep learning that AI. Like I, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think they're really cool. I think um, I think that I think we're we're you know our our attention spans are getting shorter. Um. <laughs> Our uh, our time is getting shorter. We're getting busier. Uh, I think that you know, couple that with to your point, you know, the space is moving ultra fast, and like new libraries are getting created and getting popular, like like at, at like speeds we've never seen before. And so I think like I really love what what Andrew's done with the deep learning AI courses. I think you know I saw the one with uh, Harrison and Mike Chain, and I thought that was really cool. Yeah, uh, and then the one with Sharon and the Lamini folks. Um, so I think like you can. Um, like those are really good. I, I think there's no like, there's no, also no substitute for kind of learning the nuts and bolts as well. I think if you look at like the you know the 60 minute bullets on PyTorch like that Sumit put together like several years ago, like that's still incredibly popular. People go to it and use it. And like I know I guess CNNs aren't really like exciting anymore, but like building a CNN from scratch is still fun. And like building you know like a like a, a an image classifier is still fun. Or building. And it's still kind of, and it's not just fun, it kind of gives you like really an understanding of how this stuff actually works at the end of the day. Versus like, um, for better or for worse, um, you know, the barriers to interacting with Gen AI are so low. So like, you know, people, 
largely like my parents, for example, or people who are new to ML, they interact with ChatGPT or Bard or these things, they prompt things, and they don't really understand like what's happening underneath, that there's a, there's a large model and you're interacting with it and there's all these you know, gem operations that are ultimately being, you know, being run and forwards and backward pro propagations and updates and all these things and, and how, how these models are constructed and, and how inference works. And, um, and I think like, like actually going back to basics and actually, I remember, you know, uh, writing my first network all in NumPy, for example, was like really cool. Um, this was a long time ago now. And I just like <laughs> learning, you like, you know, relearning the chain rule, right. But writing, writing it in, in NumPy and Python, because obviously I was an engineering and uh, undergrad and I learned the chain rule like ages ago and then probably forgot it and then relearned it. And, uh, and so like, I think that like, it doesn't hurt, I think, to go and just learn these things and understand how these models actually work. And, um, versus honestly, like if you just interact with them, I think the surface layer, it's, while it's cool and it kind of democratizes things and it makes it more of an interaction, um, you really like, kind of clueless as to what's happening underneath so yeah totally agree. I, I learned a lot from implementing many things in in numb time myself that's been an important part of my process um well, all right i felt i feel like we should um we should wrap up and we always end with two questions that feel free to take in any direction you like but um the second to last uh question is what do you think is an underrated topic in this broad field of machine learning and um the lms that you work on I'm, you know, I'm going to go with, uh, I'm, I'm still going to stick with AI for science. You know, I spent um, uh, a bunch of time on that in previous to Google. And, you know, if you look at some of the teams that um, that were in my, you know, some of the, the projects that were in my team, like mm -hmm. the theorem proving and our protein team, which is, you know, now in kind of building a business. Um, and there's a team still there that's you know working on open catalyst and and now uh, releasing they just released a data set for a direct air capture uh for carbon removal like i and, and this isn't you know llm specific these are actually gnns um but obviously like um you know just i would say in ml in general i still like love to see the direct impact of work and you know what i mean it's like if this is one when, when we were selling for example like uh the direct air capture project last year you know, to we're, we met with Shreff and we met with like leadership and and you know we're like, hey, like we want to build this thing and we want it. We want our data centers. You know, we want to build into our data centers. We want to basically open source everything so we can create a community and we don't want to keep this technology to ourselves because, frankly, you know, we want to have global impact if we possibly can. Uh, so, like, those are the kind of project that's where I see like so much potential. And there's, there's just very little, like everyone is kind of like looking over there when all that's happening over here, right? Everyone's focused on chatbots and and being able to generate you know, images and videos. Um, whereas like, I really think the impact is actually in the more pragmatic sciences um, in areas like biology and material science. And uh, and so ultimately, like I can see direct impact from that research. It's not like it's, it's, it's far off. Um, so well, I, that's I, what I, honestly I, excites me. I totally agree with you on that um, and, and feel the same way, but I actually hadn't heard of the this air, air capture project. Um, can you tell, how, how does how does machine learning help with that? Yeah, I mean, if you look at, so I'll, I'll just talk about Open Catalyst for a second. So Open Catalyst is a, a project that um, has been going on for a couple of years. So Larry Zitnick is the researcher in FAIR that 
know, this has been his, like, he, he was actually in computer vision at MSR uh, for a long time. So he's a long time, you know, Microsoft guy. And he came over and one of the early FAIR um, you know, researchers. And, you know, up in one day, he basically, like, learned chemistry um, and just, like, started bridging, you know, ML and chemistry and started this project. And he's an incredible person. You should probably have him on this podcast. He's one of, like, the, the folks that is really, really interesting to talk to. Um, so I'll send him your way. Uh, and, you know, what we learned is that, you know, you can take the same paradigm of kind of exploring, you know, the materials um, and, and kind of molecules much more efficiently, you know, using, say, graph neural networks. And so you kind of like you have, you know, Schrodinger's equations and you can go and solve those and do this like the hard way. Right. You can estimate that using something um, called density functional theory, DFT. And then you can actually estimate TFT with like an actual like GN and you can get it to be like really pretty accurate, accurate enough, basically such that you can actually use it as essentially a really amazing filter that gets you to like some interesting molecules to even generate like, or, or you know, frankly materials that have never really been explored before. And, um, you know, we have internal projects where this is actually like landed real impact, um, We've, uh, and even in, in terms of like the, uh, uh, the open catalyst project where the whole goal of that project is basically to find a low cost, uh, you know, catalyst, right? So today it's, it's platinum and, and these very expensive materials. If you find these things that are, that are cheaper, you can actually lower the barriers to lower the cost to generating things like hydrogen. And that's really the premise of that project. And so what we essentially thought of is like, when we start to look at these other material, um, regimes, if we look at areas like, um, say, sorbent materials and direct air capture. So if anyone's familiar with, with direct air capture, you basically, you, you take in the air, um, you capture the CO2 in a sorbent, and then you have to regenerate that sorbent, which basically removes the carbon from it, and then you can do something with the carbon, like sequester it under the ground, um, turn it into some type of a biofuel, whatever you want to do. And what we found um, in just working with this community is like these sorbent materials to regenerate them, actually in, in some cases, like in liquid, and this and my, my knowledge is a little bit out of date here because I've been dealing, you know, working on Gen AI too much. Um, but, you know, you can, you, you have to heat these, uh, heat the sorbent up quite a bit in order to, like we're talking you know, liquid in, in hundreds of Celsius. Like I think at some point it was something like 900 C to regenerate a liquid sorbent. That's probably lower now because I'm sure there's been, been some innovation in the last year. But that's really expensive, and you may actually generate more carbon as a result than you've actually captured, which makes it kind of a futile process. Um, and so the goal of that project is ultimately, you know, to explore different material spaces and find sorbents that, you know, could even, for example, like run off the waste heat of, say, a data center or a building or, you know, some something where you don't actually have to, to expel a bunch of energy just to remove um, the carbon. And so, you know, if you can find the right materials that kind of can operate within certain climates, because obviously desert versus, you know, say Iceland versus, you know, northern Canada, these are different, very different climates. And the sorbent may be different for each of those climates. So it's a, it's not something that you can just solve and be done. Um, and so that's really where being able to explore a lot of different, you know, molecules and materials, um, it's really interesting. So, um, yeah, I mean, so it's a really interesting Base. Uh, Anima totally. and Kumar at NVIDIA is also like working out some of these things and she's, you know, she's applying a lot of it as well. So if you want to talk to her about that. Yeah, definitely. I, I love that stuff. Um, but all right, we should get to our, our final question, which I'm sure you'll have a, a, an interesting perspective on, which is 
when people try to get these things to work in the real world, and you normally ask like generally like models in the real world, but I'm curious for you when people try to get like Lama 2 to work in the real world, what are the biggest issues that they run into today? Um, I think it's it's actually pretty straightforward to kind of get a proof of concept these days with these models. I think the barriers are so low. Like you can, you know, even these APIs, for example, um, you know, we have fine-tuning APIs. Like you go to like Together AI, you know, there's a, you can grab llama models and you can you can do like supervised fine-tuning on them and, and be able to deploy for an application pretty quickly. I think the, the biggest barriers in my mind to open models though is um, if you want to take a model besides say like the canonical models that say like we release. And like I said, there's like 11,000 of them on, on Hugging Face. And I'm sure like probably double that or, or at least that amount in private private posting. Um, you don't know the data lineage. And I think that's like, so you don't know like if you're, what exposure you have, for example, um, there. Um, there's also no, not you know, I think evals are still a problem like, for safety. And I think, you know, you saw like, I think Scale released, you know, their their safety suite um, this past week, which is pretty cool. Uh, but I think like we still have a long way to go in, in terms of like taking these models actually, you know, today I think there's pretty basic stuff. Like I think OpenAI has a has a content moderation API. They also have a, a copyright infringement API they just released. Um, and I think these are great starts. Um, but I think that's like the biggest, biggest, like some of the biggest challenges because inherently these models are risky. Like uh, like there's there's risk to them, and you you know I think we need to to build a lot more safe safety and, and responsibility into the system. And I like I said, I want to do that in an open way uh, as much as possible. So I would say those are probably the biggest things. Um, but also like you know it's it's much easier to use an API than it is to use a llama model, and that's why you know we're glad to have our partners. Like not every company takes a can take a model a set of model weights. Um, and then be able to deploy a 70 billion parameter model at like scale, right? LLMOPS is is a thing, um, and it takes effort and it takes engineering and it takes some some know-how to do it efficiently. Like you probably get it to work, but that's why you see like these articles that say, "Hey, I'm, I'm spending way too much on my open source model deployment than I am with with some like API," is because there's some work to be done, right, to do it efficiently. And I think we're, you know, I'll be investing to kind of lower those barriers over time. Um, but ultimately, like, uh, but today it's, it's so hard for many companies. So. Awesome. Well, thanks, Joe. This is super fun. Um, really appreciate it. Good, <laughs> this to, was fun. good to catch All up. Right. Yeah. So I think, yeah, I, I think, think I owe good. you some scotch. So let's get together and get a glass yeah. of scotch. Let's do it. Yeah. That sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Gradient Descent. Please stay tuned for future episodes.